the Bain Free Radio Hour. On this week's podcast, Filk, that is, the music of science fiction and fantasy, featuring several of the genre's top practitioners, plus part 55 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Glad you're here with us. I'm contributing editor Gray Reinhardt, once again sitting in for Bain editor Tony Daniel. In this podcast, we feature a roundtable discussion with some luminaries from the Filk community of science fiction and fantasy musicians. Jeff Bonhoff, Brenda and Bill Sutton, Carla Ulbrich, and Rob Wynn. We hope this can become an ongoing feature of the podcast. And we also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. And now here's the... Well, to be honest, it's not so much news as interesting stuff I dredged up about this week in history. This podcast is being recorded the week of April 20th, 2015, for release on the 24th. Since our topic this week is the music associated with science fiction and fantasy, you might be surprised that I actually found a couple of related history items. First, some science and particularly space-related items that you might find interesting. This week in 1953, Francis Crick and James Watson published their paper describing the double helix structure of DNA. That discovery would eventually earn them a Nobel Prize. Moving from biology to space, this week in 1933, the rocket scientist Annie Easley was born in Birmingham, Alabama. You may not have heard of her, but she was a remarkable woman. In the days when women, and particularly black women, were often denied educational opportunities, Easley studied at Xavier University in New Orleans and then moved to Cleveland, where she was hired by the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, the predecessor to NASA. She earned a degree in mathematics and worked as a computer scientist at NASA for over 30 years, where one of her greatest contributions was to the Centaur Upper Stage Program. Staying in space, 25 years ago this week, in 1990, the Space Shuttle Discovery launched from the Kennedy Space Center on mission STS-31 to deploy the Hubble Space Telescope. The pilot on that mission was Charles Bolden, who in 2009 took over as the current administrator of NASA. Your host had the pleasure of being part of the landing recovery team for that mission when I was stationed at Edwards Air Force Base. That mission also has a direct connection to this week's podcast topic, since one of the wake-up songs played for the crew was actually a filk song, Cosmos by Frank Hayes, who has won multiple Pegasus Awards for Excellence in Filking and is a Filk Hall of Fame honoree. And that gets us to genre history. This week, in 1933, World Fantasy Award-winning author and screenwriter Peter S. Beagle was born in New York City. Probably best known for his novel The Last Unicorn, 
Beagle was also nominated for a Pegasus Award for Excellence in Filking in 1989 in the Best Fantasy Song category for Magician's Wives. Finally, for the history, this week in 1912, Golden Age author and science fiction grandmaster A.E. Van Vogt was born in Gretna, Manitoba, Canada. Van Vogt was a highly influential author who got his start from John W. Campbell in the July 1939 issue of Astounding Science Fiction. Several years ago, Bain published a collection of Van Vogt's short fiction in Transgalactic, edited by Eric Flint and David Drake. Speaking of Bain, of course, we remind you of April's mass market paperback releases. First, 1920, America's Great War, an alternate history thriller by Robert Conroy in which Germany, victorious in the First World War, invades the United States along the Mexican border, and the U.S. desperately resists the German onslaught. And Balance Point by Robert Butner, the third installment in the Orphan's Legacy science fiction adventure series, in which covert operators Jason Parker and Kit Bourne must penetrate the insular and repressive world Yavit in order to foil a plot that threatens to turn the interplanetary Cold War II hot and nuclear. You can find these titles at booksellers everywhere. We are very grateful to have a few of the key players, literally, in the Filk community on the podcast with us today. First, we have Jeff Bonhoff. Jeff is a guitarist, a songwriter, a producer, and recording engineer, and he has been playing music with his wife, Maya, since 1979. They've released several CDs featuring parodies as well as original songs, and Jeff has been nominated for numerous Pegasus Awards, often as a collaborator with Maya, and has won three times, twice with Maya. In 2014, Jeff won the Best Adapted Song Pegasus for Midichlorian Rhapsody. Jeff, it's great to have you on the show today. Thanks, Greg. Next, we have Brenda and Bill Sutton. And I should start by pointing out that the Suttons were inducted into the Filk Hall of Fame in 2001. Brenda sings and plays guitar and has performed with the groups Three Weird Sisters and Year in a Day. She helped establish Gafilk, the Georgia Filk Convention, and is the webmistress for a number of Filk-related sites. She met Bill at the Bay Filk II Filk Convention, and they got married at the Ohio Valley Filk Festival in 1988. She has won three Pegasus Awards and been nominated for three more. Brenda, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. And we are happy that you are here. Bill is a founding member of Interfilk a group that sponsors filkers for travel to international conventions. Bill has organized filk at Worldcons, and with Brenda was one of the founders of Gafilk. He's been nominated for over a dozen Pegasus Awards and won three. Bill, glad you could be here. Glad to be here, too. Looking forward to the conversation. Next is Carla Ulbrich 
whom I first met at Con Carolina several years ago when she was the musical guest of honor. Carla is a comical singer-songwriter and guitarist from Clemson, South Carolina, currently living in New Jersey, whose music covers such topics as wedgies, Waffle House, Klingons, and how rich she would be if she had the copyright on the F-word. Carla has released several CDs of funny music, and her songs have been played frequently on the Dr. Demento Show and featured on ABC, USA Network, the BBC, and Sirius XM Radio. She was nominated for the Best Performer Pegasus Award in 2005. Carla, great to have you with us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And continuing alphabetically by last name, we come to Rob Wynn. Now, Rob is a man of mystery, as he has much less available information online than the other people, but I was able to discern that he's been one of the organizers of Gefilk, and in 2001 was nominated for a Pegasus Award in the Best Filk Song category. Rob, thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely happy to be here. Now, it's good to start with the basics, in case we have anyone listening for the first time. And I've glossed over the issue, but does anyone want to answer the burning question, what is Filk? <laughs> well, Filk is a word that's kind of like aloha. It means a lot of different things depending on its context. So... We sometimes use the word casually as a verb to mean to, to write a parody or to appropriate a tune to write new lyrics to it. But that's not all the folk. Yeah, that's just a specific kind of folk. Generally, the way I like to differentiate it, oh, this is Rob Wynn, by the way. Um, folk is a verb that means to sit down and share music with other people at a science fiction convention or with science fiction fans. That's really all there is to it. It's a community. The stuff you do in that community is filking. There's a lot of stuff that sounds like it might be filk, and people go, is that a filk song or not a filk song? And I say, well, that's adjacent to filk. It's the kind of thing filkers like, but filking is what actually happens inside the community. So that's my personal line around the topic. Well said. Silk used to mean uh, music that was science fiction or fantasy or, or oriented subject-wise, contextually-wise, and it had a lot of parody in it. But it's come to mean anything that gets sung at a silk saying or by a silker, and so it's a very, very broad interpretation of, of what is silk. But that's generally where it falls down. Is anyone going to tell yeah. the origin story with the typo? Yeah, we're going to get to that. I'm fascinated by this thing of filk being more a verb than anything else that's actually new to me and has never been explained to me in that way before. I feel kind of dumb. Uh, but maybe I feel kind of educated now. I don't know. Kind of the other F. This is Jeff. It's kind of the other F word. You can use it as a verb. You can use it as a noun. No. Um, I can use it as an expletive. Yeah, exactly. What the filk is going on in here? Exactly. But, you know, I, I really agree with Rob. I think, you know, a lot of definitions of filk end up being sort of circular arguments as well. It's a filk because we sang it at a filk sing, therefore it's filk. But it, what it really comes down to, to me, is it, it's a community. And so 
you know, I think a lot of people tend to kind of almost, especially newcomers, will stress out about whether they, they belong. And it's if you want to be here, you belong. And what you do is fine in a, in a folk circle. You know, I mean, I've seen people do Broadway tunes. I've seen people, you know, do heavy metal songs or, or whatever. I mean, you know, a lot of times I know when Maya and I first came into the community, we really didn't have any material that you would consider folk you know, by any strict definition of it. But, you know, people still accepted us quite readily just because we wanted to be there. So it's community to me. And one of the reasons I like to make that distinction uh, prominent is because there's an awful lot, especially in recent years, where um, there's been a lot of musical communities growing up in the science fiction, fantasy, geek cultures that is independent to self. It has come up with its own traditions and its own uh, cultures. Uh, you got your wizard rock people, you got your time lord rock people, you got your geek rock people, you got your funny music project. And all of those are things that filters go, oh, that's really good, I want to hear more of that. But we don't have the right to appropriate them into our community. They have to come and join us. And if they don't want to and they want to define themselves differently, I don't think it's right to say, well, you're, you're filthy, you just don't know it. So right. that's kind of why I like to make that distinction because, um, you know, everything that happens at a Philcon is filking. But that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of stuff out there that sounds like filk. And, you know, it's not a genre. It's not a genre that you can draw a line around and say everything that has this topic is necessarily a filk song, even if it's the sort of thing filkers will like. Yeah, this is Bill. Um, I think we see that in the evolution of the use of the word. Uh, originally, it very much referred to a fan-oriented parody, and pretty much that was the consistent usage of it. Then it began to be used more to refer to kind of what people did sitting around in a circle at night. Then as the music became to more original, uh, new stories were coming up in the music that had nothing to do with what was out there in the literature or the movies. Perhaps it expanded to hit other science topics that would normally not be part of storytelling. Then it became a reference to the music itself, but that became really hard to hold the definition because, as Rob said, there are a lot of people now in particular that have discovered the joys of what 20 or 30 years ago was a pretty small contingent of people. Now you've got, you know, at, the, at that point, the largest science fiction convention in the world was the World Science Fiction Convention, which has not grown very much since those days. But then you have San Diego Comic Con, which, which absolutely dwarfs the largest world con ever, and is a group of people who absolutely fit the definition of the fanish culture, and yet they have no tradition even though their songs are the same subjects, they're the same styles, they're the same people that you really enjoy sitting down and listen to, they don't have the same tradition of getting together and sitting around in a room and singing. And perhaps that's because the parties are better at San Diego Comic-Con, I don't know. So just in recent years, this idea of defining it as the community has become more and more popular. And I'd almost venture to say that where in the past, the most divisive question you could ask of filkers is the question, what is filk? 
I find people more and more coming together with that definition of the community that, that Rob gave. This is Jeff. I think one other um, thing that I think distinguishes the filk community from the other music communities in, in fandom is that my observation, and I'm, I may well be wrong, this is just what I've seen, is that the other music communities, there's much more of a kind of a sharp line between the performers and the audience. You know, you sort of have well-known groups of, of performers who perform at conventions and do concerts um, and so on, but you don't have as much audience participation, whereas in the filking community, it's the line between the performers and the audience is kind of squishy in that we ha we do have filk circles that, you know, where everybody is welcome to participate. Not everybody chooses to, but it's you know, the... The people who do, who tend to do concerts are not necessarily the only people who make music. Well, speaking of uh, making music, this seems like a, a good point to play a song and to provide an example of the parody type of filk for our listeners. The first song we're going to play is Jeff's Midichlorian Rhapsody, which, as I mentioned before, won the Pegasus Award last year for Best Filk Song. Actually, best adapted song. Oh, best adapted song. Thank you. I've got no real life. I live on Tatooine. Working for Watto. He just flaps like a buzzing bee. Open my eyes to suns in the sky I see.
I see a little tinty cat who love a droid. Boba Fett, Boba Fett, was your father named Jango? Close and took her sight, mean, very, very frightening, me. Master Yoda, Master Yoda, Master Yoda, make him go. I pout like a small boy, why does she love me? He pouts like a small boy, in him what does she see? This settlement's just a monstrosity. Laser gun, 3PO Kenobi, let me grow. Mace Windu, no, we will not let you grow. Let him grow. Mace Windu, we will not let you grow. Let him grow. Mace Windu, we will not let you grow. Let me grow. We will not let you grow. Let me grow. We will not let you grow. No, 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 no. Mama Shmio, Mama Shmio. Dustin Raiders, let her go. Lord Palpatine has a put aside for me. content because of the internet and recording technology being what it is. And you know, it's a lot 
uh, easier to just say, here's the song I made that you can now listen to with your ears instead of having to interpret it through uh, paper fanzine. That's a very interesting connection. I had never never made that connection. I knew that Filk had begun, uh, as you said, even before the term Filk was invented. Uh, but the distribution through the fanzines uh, really adds a different element to that. And, of course, it was the misprint that uh, Carla alluded to earlier where we get the word. But I understand that there are a couple of different versions of that story. I actually looked it up in uh, tomorrow's songs today. Pretty sure most of you are familiar with that book that just came out last year, a little history of Filk. And he had a couple of different versions. I had always thought that it came from a Worldcon program, but he said that it looks as if it came from an, an article that was written. Does anybody have any more about that? Yeah, like anything else, that like anything else, there's there were lots of apocryphal stories because everything got told and retold and retold. Uh, but some some pretty deep research by uh, Lee Gold, uh, along with uh, Karen Anderson, who's acknowledged as being the first one to actually use it in print, uh, has really said that the stories all boil down to not only was it a fanzine, it was an unpublished fanzine article that the word was used, the article was never published uh, because the content was a bit bawdy, and, but someone had seen it before it was sent out in the zine, and that would have been uh, Karen Anderson, who then she and her husband, Paul, used, uh, she used uh, name Filk as the description of the song that they wrote in her fanzine, which I will not even attempt to state the title of because it's in German and is therefore fairly unpronounceable. But that, that is, is, as so many things in the age of the Internet, we can sort of zero in on some of the research and go, ah, yes, something we can all agree on. And look, here are some facts behind it and real footnotes and everything. And then everyone will still continue to tell the story they like best anyway. Exactly. <laughs> That's a book process. Yeah. One of, one of my favorite sort of jokes on the whole, you know, why silk, why silk is a word is uh, that silk is folk music for very narrow values of O. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And in the world of folk music, we have the same arguments about what is folk. If you want to start an argument mm -hmm. on, a, on an email thread, Ask that question too. It's just as inflammatory. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, actually, Phil Phil is resolved, but folk hasn't. <laughs> there, there's a terrific song by uh, Dr. James Robinson uh, to that subject about you know what is a folk song, and it goes on into great detail about all the things that oh well that can't be folk because this or that or the other, and at the end of it you're left with nothing really qualifies because the definition was too strict. <laughs> exactly. Jack's comment is really an important one. That silk is what is sung by silkers, by people who identify silkers. There's a lot of stuff that is sung by silkers by people who don't identify as being silkers, like Jonathan Colton and Weird Al Yankovic. We sing a lot of their material, but they do not identify as silkers. So we appropriate the good stuff. We keep <laughs> we pile the serial numbers off the stuff we like and we sing it, and we appropriate it. Sure. 
And that's the reason why I used this word earlier, and I'm going to keep promoting it until it catches on. I like to use There's a word that commonly is used by filkers through the years of calling something like that found silk. It's something that looks like it ought to be a filk song, but it really isn't, but I'm going to take it. I like the word filk adjacent, which is to say this is something that's not a filk song per se, but it's near enough to silk that we can take it and sing it and make it our own without trying to claim that we have some ownership over everything that's keeps in music because we don't. We just sing the stuff. All right, well, that's a new term for me. I'll start using that and see if I can help you have that catch on. Which term? Found filk? No, silk adjacent. Silk adjacent. Adjacent. It feels appropriational to me. It feels like you're taking something, you know, oh, I'm going to take that for my own and and identify it with myself rather than just acknowledging that's near to the stuff that I like and, you know. Part of good silk etiquette is always giving credit where credit is due. Yes. And people in the silk community go way out of their way to make certain that folks know, I, you know, I, this is not my tune, these are not my lyrics, this was written by thus and so, this was written by so and so, or this is my tune, these are my lyrics. Because um, there are people like Nick Davis who have written songs that other people have limited, they've, they've labeled as traditional. Because the sound is so traditional. <laughs> no, Nick Davis wrote it. Bill, tell the story about the time the, the fellow sang your song and didn't know you, you were you were even the author. Was doing yourself as I recall. Yeah, it was at a Marcon. We were sitting in a in a uh, classic kind of not really hallway filk. We'd all gotten crammed into the closed restaurant over by the um, stairway doors, and I think I had it hadn't been that long since I'd written the song, but I. It was the fellow was sitting over there, and he starts to sing it, and he was just amazed that somebody else sang along with this brand new song that he'd just heard, and he was so happy with. And I really, that time, I never did say anything to him that that I was the one who wrote. I think somebody else just sort of leaned over and tapped him on the shoulder and said, "That guy over there wrote the song." But the fellow never claimed that he wrote it. I mean, he just said, I heard this somewhere, which which that's fine. You know, have written a song a year later. It's already gone into the to the the um, uh, public as as, oh, wow, this has been handed down year after year after year. That That's kind of cool, actually. Well, one of the things that I think would interest some of our listeners, and I know it would interest me, is to find out how each of you got introduced to Filk and when you, you started in it. Brenda, for instance, I'd like to start with you. I read that uh, your first science fiction convention was a Worldcon, and that's where you discovered Filk, and I wondered if there's a story behind that that you could tell us. Okay, yeah, I was at one of the Los Angeles Worldcons back in the 80s, and it was late night that everything else had closed down, and I just did not want to go home because I lived in Elster. I just wanted to stay as long as I could, and I heard this music off in the distance in one of the hotel floors, and I wandered that direction. They were setting up a silk concert, and I got the last seat that was available right on the front row, and it was people like Joey Shoji and... Uh, Cindy McQuillan and Kathy Marr and Hayes and these, I didn't know them as silk giants then, but they were going to do this concert. And I was absolutely blown away by 
this music. And in the back of my head, I kept thinking, I think I could do that. I, you know, I wasn't trying to say I could be as good as they were, but I think I could write songs like that. Uh, so after the World Con was over, I went home and uh, some friends dragged me up to a lost con where I heard Joey Shoji for the second time. And I ran home and wrote my first silk song and came back the next day and sang it. And it was like that hook that got me, that <laughs> reeled me right in. Excellent. This is Bill. I'm back. I have uh, unfortunately lost my uh, <laughs> lost my headset a while back. So, well, Bill, you're back just in time because Brenda just got done telling us how she found the Filk community and joined it. And I wonder if uh, you could tell us your story along those lines. Uh, well, for me, it was 1983 in conjunction in Indianapolis. And it's really the classic story of walking down the hallway in the, you know, late at night looking for something else to do other than just go to the parties. So I happened to open up a, hear some music, open up a door. At the time, the Midwest Filk style was what we called the performer line, which was, you know, all the performers up in the front. And it was sort of like a party circle, except it didn't involve everybody in the room. So... We ended up with, uh, in the front of the room, uh, as I recall it, uh, the performers were basically Murray Porath, uh, Michael Longcore, Moonwolf, uh, Juanita Colson, Julia Eklar, uh, Bill Roper, Cliff Flint, uh, pretty much anybody you could name that was filking in the Midwest at the time. And I think I plopped down in a chair, listened to it the whole evening, Later on that weekend, I had the opportunity to uh, run into a, a bunch of other folks uh, who knew something about Filk, uh, some of the Chattanooga folks, uh, and uh, managed to get a hold of a big, huge notebook and a bunch of tapes people had recorded uh, from Walt Merrick, who used to sing and do stuff with, with Bob Asprin. And he said, oh, yeah, here, take these, make copies of them do whatever you want. And so I ended up with the Silk Book on Wheels that I had to cart around and started writing Silk songs. Went on a business trip out to California right at the time of Bay Felt 2 and was able to get in there and do my first songs and the rest, as they say, is history. Excellent. Carlo, are you still there? Oh, no, oh, we lost Carlo. I am, I am here. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering now whether we're, we're losing folks. But, uh, all right. Well, Carla, you wrote in that you were already playing humorous music when you discovered Filk at Gafilk. And right. honestly, that sounds a little odd to me because it's a Filk convention and to to discover Filk at a Filk convention seems to me as if you would have had to know what it was before you got there. So what's the story behind that? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm one of those what the heck people, you know, and one of my fellow funny songwriters said, Hey, I'm going to be in Atlanta. And one of my friends, told me I just had to go to this convention. Do you want to go with me? 
And I was like, well, what is it? She said, well, it's, it's silk. I said, what, what's that? She goes, I'm not really sure, but everybody keeps telling me that they're my people. So I was like, well, she and I always, everybody, is Deirdre Flint, everybody was always asking her, do you know Carla? And everybody's always asking me, do you know Deirdre? I mean, we're practically like humorous clones in a way. We're almost interchangeable. She's like really, you know, wordplay and uh, self-deprecating sometimes. And we're both short, female, around the same age. So, you know, like sometimes when I can't do a gig, I'm like, hey, why don't you get Deirdre Flint? I'm sure everybody be just happy because <laughs> we're that interchangeable. So we both went. She had gigs in Atlanta, so she didn't get to spend much time at the convention. But I was hooked. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm so glad. I know she didn't really get to have the immersion that I did. But I, I that yes, I discovered silk at a silk convention. I, I may be the only one. I don't know. But um, I, I played the two by ten. Two songs or ten minutes, which for me, I can sing like five songs in ten minutes. But, you know, I just did two songs. And I did uh, the funny song about how everybody gets my name wrong all the time. And then I did a song that was new to me. I had just written it, and it was called Please Do Something Stupid. So this was 1999. I gave you the wrong day after 2001, but that was wrong. It was 1999. I had just written it, so I didn't even know if it was any good. And it has this line in it about, I got a very, very inappropriate, humongous amount of laughter at this one line. And I'm like, it's not that funny. But then I found out later when I got the big laugh, um, I go, uh, I never date this kind of person or that kind of person. Or, you know, I never date comedians because they never laugh. Or anyone whose love letters are not at least a paragraph. Or one, anyone in high school or anyone named Steve. And that, and I got this huge laugh. I'm like, what? it's not that funny. Why are they laughing so hard? And it, Steve McDonald was in the room. Mm-hmm. And he had just <laughs> broken up with somebody. So it was like this uproarious laughter. They're like, laughing, like two or three waves of laughter. I was like, okay, I got to find out what's going on here. But I, I just was, I loved how, you know, I do spend a lot of time in the folk community, but the folk community can get, a lot more me, me, me at times because it's, there's a lot of singer-songwriters who don't uh, know anything about tradition, don't don't know anything about, you know, old traditional folks. There's always the arguments between the traditional folk and the singer-songwriters and all that and, you know, what's folk and all, as, as I mentioned before. But I go to conventions for... Um, folk conventions, there are folk conventions, but they're more like trade shows. And so people will walk up to you, hand you their card and go, come to my showcase, and then just walk away. So it's like, it just gets really tiresome. <laughs> and the community, there is community there, but there's also a lot of the me, me, me. And I was so refreshed to go sit in the folk circle and everyone is listening. And when I did my 2 by 10s by the time I got to the second chorus, everybody was singing with me. I was like, whoa! <laughs> These people are very active listeners, and you know, in the circles, everyone was so respectful, and and we're, we're all joining in with each other. Everybody was welcome to sing. Didn't matter if you did a cappella. Didn't matter if you sang off key. Didn't matter if your song had twenty seven verses. 
you know, everybody was on equal footing, and that was so refreshing to me after going to the trade convention that had gotten, I don't know how to describe it with adjectives, but in ways that weren't as healthy. You know what's funny, Carla, is at that very same gefilte, in that very same 2 by 10 concert, also because a friend said, hey, I heard about this thing, and it sounds like something you would enjoy, you should check it out, was the first time we ever saw Mary Kroll. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So That's it happens more often than you'd expect. Okay. <laughs> See? So she discovered some at a filt convention, too. Yep. And to her, don't know the Mary Cole records, she is now goddess of silk. Um, she's our <laughs> chanteuse. She plays piano. She's a doctor of music um, who came to Gefilk with some friends. And then she came back the next year, and we said, there's this grand piano that's going to be at our banquet. Wouldn't it be great if Mary wore long silk gloves and an evening gown and provided background entertainment? And we just sucked her in, and she is ours now. Mm-hmm. She's our mistress. So, I just stepped her this weekend up in uh, Canada where we played smooth jazz silk for two hours. I do remember her. (laughs) A very very fine musician. I do remember her. I did not know that was also her first. Yep. Yeah. So I didn't mean to derail this completely, but it just sort of always struck me that both of you walked in our door completely unknowing what you were going to find, and you've both been such a huge part of the community ever since. So I always associate you together because of that. Neat. That's a great story. How about you, Rob? Yeah. Yeah, Well, my story is very much like Bill's. I was a teenager at the time. It was 1985 or 6. I don't remember exactly when. It was a little convention in Virginia. Yeah, as well as little conventions, you know, you go to that they sort of roll everything up at six o'clock, and there's just nothing to do except room parties. And being underage, I couldn't get into a lot of the room parties, so I'm wandering around looking for something to do. And I walked past this hotel room that had the door propped open, and there were three guys sitting in the hotel room with a couple of guitars, and they were just playing music. And I sort of stopped at the door, and I listened for a bit, and then they said, "Hey, come on in." So I came in, and they let me sit and listen, and they were singing these songs, and I thought, oh, this is great. This is kind of cool. And then a little later on, I discovered that there were recordings or cassette tapes that you could buy that had all this cool stuff on it. I bought all that. Later, when I finally, when I moved down to Georgia, I eventually got involved with the Gefilk community in Atlanta, and I was not one of the founders of Gefilk. I was actually a volunteer at Gefilk 1 and joined the CONCOM at Gefilk 2, but I've been on that committee ever since, and been involved, but it really was because I wandered past a propped up in hotel room door where three people were soaking in their hotel room. Well, that's pretty cool. And how about you, Jeff? How did you get started in uh, the Filk community? Well, mine's kind of a, a two-part story. So it, it started with Maya selling some stories to Analog Magazine and becoming a pro writer. And really, before we even started attending conventions, the editor of Analog at the time, Stan Schmidt, suggested that we attend the Nebula Awards weekend, which was, this was 1990, and it was at the uh, the Hyatt in, in downtown San Francisco that year. And we lived about, at that time, we lived about three hours away from San Francisco Bay Area, so we, we drove drove into the city and 
attended the convention, or the weekend, it's not really a convention, and Friday night there was a party in the Cephla Suite, which was way up high in, in the hotel. The Hyatt Regency is a uh, kind of, a, it's that uh, pyramid-shaped tower in downtown San Francisco. So we're in the, uh, at the party, and I was just geeking out, meeting all of these science fiction writers that are heroes of mine, you know, talking with Robert Silverberg and Paul Anderson and et cetera, et cetera, and meeting some of the other analog writers. And then I, uh, kind of the same story, I heard some music coming from the the back bedroom in the suite. So I poked my nose in and Jane Robinson and Cynthia Ann McQuillan and Elizabeth Ann Scarborough were having a little filk circle, although I didn't know what that was at the time, but I really enjoyed the music. Um, but I, I particularly enjoyed some parodies that, that Jane did. And then I just, we continued to attend conventions for many years without really knowing, you know, the, the word folk was never actually uttered at that time. Uh, so I, I had no clue that it was actually an activity that went on at cons. And then in 1995, Maya and I attended BayCon, again, in, in the Bay Area, and we went into the green room to pick up Maya's stuff. And at this point, I was, I had just bought a nice new acoustic guitar and decided to bring it along for the weekend to entertain myself and took my guitar in with me. And when we went into the green room to pick up Maya's schedule and everything, and this woman, who it turned out was Kathy Marr, whom I didn't know at the time, saw my guitar and sort of, those of you who don't know Kathy, she can be, um, let's just say, very blunt, very direct, got about three inches from my face and said, do you play guitar? And I kind of went, yeah. And she said, do you want to play a concert tonight? <laughs> and okay, then. looked at Maya and she looked at me and I said, well, oh, you know, we were performing regularly Anyway, so it was like, um, okay. And so the funny thing is Maya hadn't brought her guitar, and we needed a guitar, and, and there was a filker from the uh, uh, Minnesota area who was sort of kind of a semi-guest of the con at the time, a guy named Howie Harrison, who happened to be there at the time. And I said to Kathy, I said, um, we're going to need to borrow a guitar for Maya. Uh, if we're going to do a concert tonight. And Howie kind of looked at me and said, well, I might I might loan you my guitar, but I need to see if you're worthy. So I had to go up to his hotel room with him with my guitar and jam with him for about a half an hour and, you know, kind of pass his test. And then he let us borrow his guitar. So we did the concert that night and we heard a bunch of other people. And it was really funny. Jane and Cynthia were um, performing right before us on the schedule and they had actually set up a little kind of backstage area, which is kind of unusual at Baycon, but they had it that year. And so we were backstage tuning up and everything, and I saw Jane and Cynthia, and Jane came up and gave me a big hug and said, I was wondering when we would see you again. And we went to our first filk circle that night afterwards, and like I said earlier, we didn't have any any real filk material at the time, but people were still very receptive to us, and we've been doing it ever since. Well, that's great. I think a lesson that I have learned from that that maybe our, our listeners can put into play is if they're at a convention and they hear music, they should follow it and see what happens. And, Absolutely. Well, and I'll also add, if you're the sort of person who plays music and you can't find anybody who's doing it, 
set yourself up in a corner somewhere and start playing stuff, and the next thing you know, you'll probably have a bunch of people sitting around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's it's like if you're lost in the woods, you should always carry a deck of cards so you can sit down and play solitaire, and someone will come up and tell you to play the Black Queen on the Red King, and you'll be found. If you go to a convention <laughs> corner, start playing a song on a guitar, somebody's going to come up and either sit down and also start playing or singing. Uh, they'll tell you they know different words to that same tune. <laughs> Well, this sounds like a good spot to play another tune. And, uh, in fact, I think this is a good spot for us maybe to close out part one of this discussion. And we'll save part two for next week. But we'll close out with uh, Carla's duet with a Klingon. And, Carla, uh, would you like to say anything by way of introduction? Well, well, first of all, my the silk experience, someone did tell me I was found silk, and I took that as a compliment. I felt very welcomed by that. I took no offense. After all, I was there joining in. So, But at some point, I, as Jeff mentioned, started to feel self-conscious about the fact that, wait a minute, I don't have any material about science fiction stuff. So I better write one. It's not like I don't like science fiction. So this was my first official foray into uh, writing something that was about science fiction, and I think I've, I might have written it either right before or after a Dragon Con, but it's it's about trying to communicate with someone, and, and you have no common ground, right? You have, like, to neither of you speak a word of the other person's language, or maybe one or two words. Now, I want you to know how I went into great detail with this, that the words in this song that are in Klingon are actual, authentic Klingon. I didn't just make stuff up. I got the Klingon dictionary, and then I had an hour-long tutoring lesson on pronunciation with, I'm sorry, I can't remember his last name. His name's Mark. He lives in Massachusetts, I think, and he taught me proper Klingon pronunciation. Maybe one of y'all can deduce who that was. That would be Mark Bell. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, tutoring lesson with me. But, yeah, that's, that's, this song was my uh, conscious attempt to write something that was actually silk. Well, that's great. So we'll listen to that, and that'll close out this half of our little discussion. I say potato, and you say... Nah. Like tomato, and you like Herg. potato. Nah. Tomato. Herg. Let's call the whole thing off. I say pajamas, and you say Nivnah. I like bananas, and you like Hadibach. Pajamas. Nivnah. Bananas. Hadibach. Let's call the whole thing off. The Jatla. Huh? The Jatla Bela. Ha Majachuk. I cannot speak Klingon. Giyajbe. I have no idea what you're saying. Gishakbe. And I don't care. Bijatle Yemev. Oh hush, you better call the calling off off.
Surrender or die. Oh, well, then if you say... Lou. Then I'll say, okay. If you say... Kaipe. I'll say, no problem. Top. Whatever. Luke Chapel. What? You better call the calling off, off. Let's call the whole thing off. Ciao, which loss? Now here is part 55 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free when you try Audible free for 30 days. If you're just joining us, it's the 1930s in America, but not the America our history books describe. In the 1860s, in this world, magical abilities manifested in a small number of people from all walks of life, and with each succeeding generation since, more and more people have developed magical talents. They're called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but not all of them. Jake Sullivan is an active known as a heavy because he can control the force of gravity, a talent that has saved his life many times over the years. He's a former soldier, an ex-con, and now a private eye who was recruited into a secret organization of actives known as the Grim Noir Knights. The Knights are the good guys, and the rest of humanity needs their help because the evil forces of magic are about to unleash a magic-based apocalypse. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 55 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Heinrich was nowhere to be seen. Delilah was picking herself off the ground from where she'd crashed through the railing hard enough to break every bone in her body. So it was up to him. Daniel Garrett had hit the fallen iron guard with everything he had. He punched him in the face until he felt his knuckles break, and then he'd tried kicking him, but the huge iron guard slowly got up from the grating anyway. Dan stepped back, shaking his stinging hands. The iron guard twisted his head, and he could hear the vertebrae pop. His little black eyes were far too small for the size of his head, and they zeroed right in on Dan. The sumo growled. Sure you don't want to talk this over? Dan asked. The bridge shook as the iron guard lumbered at him. Guess not. Delilah shoulder-checked him out of the way. Pick on somebody your own size. The two brutes crashed together, one dead, one alive, one huge, one tiny, but both of them very angry. They stood toe-to-toe, -to -toe, hammering each other, Dan landed on his side with a grunt. 
The iron guard hit Delilah so hard that he felt the vibrations travel down her body and through the floor, but she didn't budge. Delilah responded by putting one hand on his shoulder, shoving herself into the air and bringing her elbow down in the center of the sumo's head with a blow that could have killed an elephant. That staggered him a bit. Get the device, Delilah screamed. I'll hold fatty. Struggling to his feet, he saw Delilah throw a backhand at the iron guard's head, but he was too fast, too martially skilled, and he caught her arm while simultaneously bringing his other hand around. Delilah's forearm shattered, bone visibly ripping through the flesh. Dan gasped at the horrific sound. Delilah stepped back, looked down at the jagged bones sticking out of her forearm and the delicate hand dangling uselessly from the skin and tendons. No blood came out. Move your ass, Garrett, she ordered as she stepped forward, ducked under the iron guard's swing, and drove the bone shard into the sumo's vast belly. Dan heard the iron guard gasp as the bones penetrated his body, but was too busy running for engineering to look back. A hand appeared over the edge of the railing. Heinrich! He was alive and pulling himself up. He didn't dare stop to help his friend. He could feel the air humming with the Tesla device's energy. The lights were no longer red. He was in the engineering section. He jumped over the dead bodies of the Imperials he'd murdered and the pile of twisted bones and smoking fat that had been their torch. There was a single man standing in his way wearing the same red and black robes as the other iron guards, but this one wasn't nearly as physically intimidating. Skinny and rat-like, this had to be the Lazarus. He was blocking the steel door. Dan could feel the geotel on the other side. But then the Lazarus moved a scabbard around in front of his body and drew a sword. His English was perfect. I am not the warrior my brothers are, but I am more than a match for the likes of you. He tossed the scabbard away and lifted the blade in both hands. The eviscerated bodies were starting to move, groaning and whimpering on the floor as they came to. Even the ashen pile of bones was stirring. The dead soldiers began to cry out in agony. The Lazarus hissed. I am Hiroyasu of the Iron Guard, and my magic is based in suffering. There was a gray flash as Heinrich surged past. Hiroyasu swung the sword through the blur. Heinrich rematerialized, blocking the weapon before it could come back up. Suffering? Heinrich asked, grabbing the surprised Iron Guard by the robe. I'll show you suffering. Then the fade spun him around, both of them going gray as they sailed into the wall. Heinrich totally disappeared, but he must have let go of Hiroyasu partway through. The iron guard reformed, solid, but his body had fused with the metal. The left half of his body and his head were still visible, but his flesh had become one with the bulkhead. Hiroyasu began to scream, incoherent with pain. There was a clicking as the door unlocked from the other side. Heinrich held it open for Dan. The Fade saw the thrashing iron guard and admired his work. That was for Delilah. Hurry. Dan stepped through after him, noticing that the iron guard's other arm and leg were flailing madly on this side. They ran down the hall. Think we can use guns in here? Heinrich asked. 
They were surrounded by solid walls and away from the heaving bags. Probably. Dan pulled the forty-five from his belt. About damn time, Heinrich answered as a luger appeared from inside his coat. They reached the last door, both of them automatically taking up positions on either side. They'd worked together for a long time. There was a round glass window, and when he risked a glance through, he could see a strange device crackling with electricity sitting in the middle of a table. That's it. There were a bunch of men in long black coats surrounding it. He tried the latch. Locked. Heinrich nodded, knowing what to do. He faded, but as he did so, two shadow guard appeared, took the G-Hotel between them, and traveled it away. Faye woke up groaning. She felt nauseous. Hold still, you lost a lot of blood, Francis told her. She looked down. Her pant leg had been torn off and her calf had been wrapped in a bandage. It really hurt. There was more gunfire. She checked her head map. The Tokugawa was in chaos. Grimoire and pirates were spread all over the big ship. The pirates were headed this way, being chased by Imperium. Some of her friends were in the middle of the ship looking for the big evil magic super bomb, but it had just traveled to the very bottom. She was having a hard time seeing down there. At first she thought it was because of the blood loss making her silly-headed, but then she realized that the black fogginess came from the chairman. His power was so big that everything around it was cast in shadow, but the big, evil, magic superbomb was dragging so much power up out of the middle of the world that it illuminated even him. Somehow she knew they only had minutes. The illumination showed that a couple of her friends were down there, surrounded by iron guards. But there was something else. The power wasn't just being attracted to Tesla's invention. There was another spot in the middle of the ship. It was glowing, too. She concentrated harder, trying to figure out what was going on, and that's when she realized exactly what was happening. She smacked her hands onto both sides of Francis's face. We've got to get everyone out of here fast as we can. She let go and tried to get up. Stay still, you're in no shape to move. No, you don't understand. It isn't what anyone thought it was. Everyone is wrong. The chairman is wrong. We've got to go. I've got to bring everyone on to the tempest. What? Don't move. You're still bleeding from... Ah, oh, you are such a boy. You know I see the world different than everybody else. Listen, do you trust me or not? Francis was perplexed. Yeah, I guess. Then get a bucket and fill it with nails and broken glass and anything else you can use to stab people with your brain and get that blimp in the air. We've only got minutes. He nodded. She could see it in his eyes. He didn't have a clue what she was talking about, but God bless him, Francis actually trusted her. She kissed him on the cheek and traveled before she could see his reaction. That was part 55 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. That's it for this installment of the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to Jeff Bonhoff, Brenda and Bill Sutton, Carla Ulbrich, and Rob Wynn. 
I'm Gray Reinhardt, contributing editor for Bain Books, and it's been my pleasure to be your host for this episode of the podcast. Please join us next time for the Bain Free Radio Hour, where the heart of science fiction and fantasy beats strongly.